Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. If you've been with us uh, for the last couple of months, you know that we are reading through the Bible in a year, and we are studying through the Bible in a year together on Sundays. And uh, we have been in the first 11 chapters of the Bible uh, for months now. And in those first 11 chapters, we've uh, really covered a lot. Uh, The first 11 chapters of the Bible are all about creation, Uh, The creation of the cosmos, the creation of humanity, God's uh, design, purpose, and intent for how the cosmos and humanity were to operate. Uh, But they also trace uh, the struggle that follows. As humanity, uh, all of humanity rebels against God. And uh, there's this sort of humanity-wide rebellion, uh, humanity-wide flood, And then what happens after the flood is that uh, humanity, humans, fall back into rebellion against God once more. And then you hit chapter 12, and and as we did last week. And chapter 12 is this sort of turning point in the book of Genesis, where it goes from stuff that's happening across the cosmos or across all of humanity, and all of a sudden it zooms in on one individual named Abraham. And it's uh, this one man, Abraham, whom God calls out and, and calls to follow after him. And he promises Abraham that it is through him and his offspring that God is going to bless the entire world. God's plan to rescue humanity and bring them back into the goodness of the garden is curiously going to center around one man and his descendants. The problem is that Abraham doesn't have any descendants. And so Abraham has to have incredible faith in God and his ability to give them a child as a fulfillment of God's promise. And there's all sorts of ups and downs, if you remember that storyline. At one point, both Abraham and his wife give up faith that God's going to provide them a child, and they essentially try to start building descendants through uh, Sarah's slave girl, Uh, but God sort of rejects that idea. He's not having any of it, and so after years pass by, uh, eventually Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah is 90 years old, and finally somehow God gives them a son, Isaac. And no matter how you frame the birth of Isaac, it's an absolute miracle. Sarah has been barren her entire life, and she's now 90 years old. It is not humanly possible for a 90-year-old woman to give birth to a child, let alone one who's been barren. And yet somehow, that's exactly what happens. God brings about this miracle uh, that is almost a, a prelude to the virgin birth of Jesus. It's this miracle 
that confirms beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is at work, that God is with them, and thus God fulfills his promise to give them a son. Isaac is sort of this uh, miracle baby, blessed by God and given to Sarah and Abraham in their old age. God has just come through in an amazing way, and things are finally looking up. And then we get today's story from Genesis 22. This is starting in verse 1. It says, Sometime later, this is when Isaac is older, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. And I'll pause here for a moment before we continue. It was common practice in the ancient Near East to sacrifice a child as part of of worshiping false gods. Uh, This practice, as we'll see later in the scripture, is detestable to God. He hates it. It's one of the reasons that the Canaanites will be expelled from the promised lands. It's one of the reasons that Israel will eventually go into exile. God makes it clear time and time again that he hates this practice. Never once... Will God ask for this type of sacrifice? Except here. In order to test Abraham, he asks him to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the son he loves. And somehow, Abraham has the faith to say yes. And the only reason that Abraham has the faith to say yes is that his faith has grown. Time and time again in the preceding decades, God has called him, challenged him, and promised him things that seemed impossible in his eyes. And yet, time and time again, God has come through. Now, God has come to him yet again with another test. And yet, as Abraham looks backwards through the decades, he's seen how God tends to make a way where there is no way. His faith in God has grown tremendously in the years leading up to this moment. And so he's faced with another opportunity to trust. Isaac was confirmation of God's promise. Uh, Isaac is the only means through which God's promise can be fulfilled. The death of Isaac would not only be heartbreaking, but it would seem to be the death of the promise as well. And yet, Abraham knows that somehow God will make a way where there is no way. The writer of Hebrews uh, says it this way. He says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, 
Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So against all odds, Abraham has this reckless, audacious faith. God is good. God is going to make good on his promises. God will make a way where there is no way. He'll raise the dead if he has to. Nothing is impossible for him. Here's what happens next. If you still have your Bibles open, this is starting in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him his two servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Now, this story is shocking from start to finish. Abraham is holding the knife over his son, ready to do the unthinkable, when an angel cries out to Abraham to stop. And God blesses Abraham in that place. 
But there's two things I want us to notice uh, before we close this morning. Uh, The first is that Abraham trusts in the future provision of the Messiah. And the second is that Abraham foreshadows the future provision of the Messiah. We'll take each one in turn. Uh, First, Abraham trusts in the future provision of the Messiah. As Abraham heads up the mountain, he is trusting in God's ability to save and even resurrect Isaac. But he also says, as he's climbing, that God will supply the lamb for the sacrifice. And as we just read, they get to the top, God stops him from sacrificing Isaac, and then two things happen. The first is that God supplies a ram for the sacrifice, which is different than a lamb. And then Abraham names this mountain, the Lord will provide. Not the Lord just provided, not the Lord has provided, but God will provide. He's actually looking forward to a future provision, a future lamb, a future sacrifice to be made. And centuries later, it was still being said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham and the generations that followed were looking forward to a future provision of a future lamb. He was trusting in the provision of the Messiah. Second, Whether Abraham knew it or not, his actions completely foreshadowed the future sacrifice which was to come. Abraham and Isaac acted out firsthand the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. And in order to see the significance of this event, I want us to start by considering Abraham's age. On the day that Abraham leads Isaac up the mountain, he's not 100, he's more like 118. Which means that Isaac is somewhere around 18. Now, quick question, who is typically stronger, an 18-year-old or a 118-year-old? Yeah, it's, it's not even close. Meaning that Isaac was not a little kid being led up the mountain against his will. He was, for all practical purposes, a grown man who was far stronger than Abraham at this point. In fact, he's strong enough to carry all the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain on his back. Which means, if you can picture the scene in your mind, we're not talking about a strong father tying up his unwilling son. It's actually a fragile father 
asking the world of his one and only son. Isaac went willingly. He allowed Abraham to tie him willingly. He placed himself on the wood willingly. He would have allowed Abraham to plunge the knife into him and end his life right then and there on his own free will. What happened on that mountain was father and son acting in faith and in unison to accomplish the purposes of God. And that is exactly what happened at the cross. Too often we speak of the cross and we uh, picture Jesus as the son innocently suffering in agony to appease the wrath of the Father. Have you heard that before? So we kind of have this picture of angry God the Father taking out all of his wrath on innocent Son who stands in our place. But if we are to take the sacrifice of Isaac as a foreshadowing of the cross, then it was actually the willing agony of both father and son. It was a sacrifice of father and son given to appease the wrath of both father and son. Jesus is just as antagonized by sin as the father. If God naturally feels wrath towards sin, then, then it is both of them together that experience it. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. It's not that one is wrathful and the other plays the innocent victim. No. The Father and the Son are working together. And at the cross, they both experience wrath against sin. And they both experience agony as they stand in our place for our sin. Here's Abraham with his son. He's one and only son. The son whom he loves. The son of the promise. This miracle born in his old age. And now he's told to kill him cut him up, and burn him. I have three boys, and I cannot imagine what Abraham is feeling in this moment. I cannot even fathom the agony. The heartache that Abraham was prepared to feel in that moment that God the Father would eventually feel as His Son hung on the cross. It is almost unimaginable. Abraham is feeling the full weight of that agony. I imagine there are tears in his eyes as he raises the knife above his son. 
And God steps in and intervenes at the last moment. And he says, in a sense, stop Abraham. You don't have to do that. That's my job. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give my one and only son. You don't have to. And as Abraham stands on Mount Moriah, he basks in the glory of God. And he trusts in the future provision of the Messiah. And he says, on this mountain, it will be provided. And centuries later, the Jewish people had a different name for that mountain. They called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was the hill outside the city where criminals were executed. And centuries later, a different son, the one and only son of God, the son whom he loves, would walk up that same hill carrying the wood on which he would be sacrificed. And on that fateful day, father and son would agonize together as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And at last, a lamb was provided. You see, we'd like to separate out the Old Testament and the New Testament in our minds. And because one of them has the word old in the title, we typically think of it as old and outdated. And we don't say irrelevant, but sometimes we think that. But study it a little closer and a different picture emerges. If I were to recap the last two weeks of teaching and sum up the life of Abraham, I would do it this way. Abraham, uh, first off, he follows God in Baal land, where everyone around him is worshiping someone else and worshiping false gods. Abraham uh, sets up altars of worship to Yahweh in the midst of a pagan culture. Second, Abraham trusts God even when it doesn't make sense. He says, God, I trust you to protect me. I trust you to provide. I trust you to bring a child out of a 90-year-old womb, to give me descendants as numerous as the stars, to make good on your promises. I, it doesn't make sense from where I'm sitting, but I trust you. Third, Abraham commits to living a righteous life. He says, hey, me and my descendants will walk in righteousness and justice, or tzedakah and mishpat, for those who were here last week. And finally, Abraham says, I'm going to trust in the future provision of the Messiah. And from where I'm sitting... That seems to be exactly what you and I are called to do. 
follow Jesus in a culture that wants nothing to do with him. Follow Jesus in our skeptical, secular age. You're going to stand out. It's going to cost you something. It might cost you everything. But follow after him. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Trust him with your life and your finances. Trust him to lead you into a place where you will be fruitful for the sake of his kingdom. Trust him to return one day and set everything right. Trust him to resurrect you from the dead. None of that seems to make sense in the eyes of the world. But he's asking you to trust him with everything. I uh, grew up self-identifying as an atheist. My actions, my thoughts, my life, all of it was very much in line with the flow uh, of atheist and, and secular culture. I, I didn't trust in things that I couldn't see, and I couldn't see God. I can't see Jesus. I, I can't see his promises. I certainly cannot see his future kingdom, which is to come. But when you encounter Jesus, he invites you into this counterintuitive life of faith. And what is faith? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is learning to see beyond the physical world in front of our eyes and to engage in a trusting relationship with God. And, and that costs me something to do that. Switching from one world to the other was not easy. Following Jesus in an increasingly secular age is not a walk in the park. It cost me something. I, I lost friends in that transition. I lost reputation and social status, at least in their eyes. I lost uh, the ability to blend in. I started standing out among my college friends in a way that was not always easy. I had my moments of feeling mocked and marginalized over the years. But my guess is that Abraham did too. As far as I can tell, he was the only one trying to worship Yahweh in a culture of idolatry. When I came to Jesus, I had to place my trust in him for everything. Not just forgiveness of sin, not just salvation, for everything. I had to give up my right to rule and govern my own life, to choose my own career and do the things that I thought I wanted to do. Jesus says, die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. Don't worry 
uh, about clothes and food and provision. Just, just seek first my kingdom. I'll provide all that you need. That's central to discipleship. You know what that's saying? It's saying, it's saying God, I trust you. Even when it doesn't make sense. I will surrender each and every area of my life to you because I trust you. I trust you with my career. I trust you with my finances. I trust you with my sexuality. I trust you with my relationships. I trust you with my very life. I will lay down my life for the sake of your kingdom. And if that includes being put to death, then so be it. Because I trust that you will raise me up again. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of my atheist friends, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It's about as likely as a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a son. doesn't make sense not outside of relationship but you and I we've been brought into relationship with the living God and now we're called just like Abraham to trust in God for everything no matter the time no matter the place no matter the cost God I trust you When God calls your name, you respond like Abraham did. Here I am. What is it, God? What's next? Point number three. We follow in the footsteps of Abraham, and more specifically in the footsteps of Jesus himself, by living lives characterized by righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat, in which all relationships with God, with land, and with others are all set right and flourishing as God intended. That's what the inbreaking kingdom is all about. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And finally, as we close, we trust in the provision of the Messiah. That on that mountain, it was provided. That Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice for our sins in our place. That in it, He conquered death on our behalf. He took your sin. He died your death. And he's not upset about it. He doesn't regret doing that for you. He laid down his life. He provided what we could never provide so that we could be free. So now we trust in the work of the cross that God has provided. We trust in the power of the cross over our lives right here, right now, this morning, that God is providing. And just like Abraham, we look to the horizon. 
We look to the future when the kingdom of God will come in full. And we say with faith in our hearts that God will provide. Jesus will return. He will fulfill his promises. He will wipe evil off the face of the map and usher in an eternity more glorious than we could possibly imagine. In fact, we're told that by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Next slide. And by faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Next slide. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Next slide. These people were all commended for their faith, Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Does that sound like two stories or one? Sounds like one. We stand on the same broken planet, welcoming the same things from a distance, following the same God in a culture that does anything but, trusting in the same God even when it doesn't make sense, trusting in the provision of the Messiah which we've had the benefit of witnessing, while all the while looking forward to a better country, a heavenly country, by faith. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I want you to remember Abraham. I want you to remember this ancient call and consider what it might look like in your life. What does it look like for you to live by faith? Not me, not the people sitting around you. What does it look like for you to live by faith? What does it look like for you 
to consider yourself a, a stranger and an alien in this place who's ultimately waiting for the future city of God? What does it look like for you to trust in the provision of the Messiah that on that mountain it was provided? Do you believe that? That you don't have to earn anything. That you have no reason to strive in God's presence. That you have no accusation to face. You are forgiven, released, redeemed, set free. His sacrifice was full and it was final. And we receive it by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That's you, me, us, right here in this room right now. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This isn't about your works. It's not about your accomplishments. It's not about your morality. It's about faith. Follow Jesus in a culture that doesn't. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Walk in the righteousness and justice of God. And walk by faith. We have faith in God's promises. We have faith in God's future. And we have faith that on that mountain, it was provided. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you humbled this morning, recognizing that the wages of sin, its natural payout and effect is death that apart from you, we will perish. And we recognize this morning that you did not accept that reality, that you were not content to watch us suffer in the consequence of our action, that you stepped in, that just as you intervened for Abraham in this life and death situation, so too you have intervened for us. That, that our lives could have been the price for what we've been born into. And yet, on that mountain, you saw fit to provide. God, we thank you for your provision. We rejoice in your provision. We recognize that in it we find healing, that in it we find joy, that in it we find salvation and forgiveness, that all of it traces back to you carrying the wood for your own sacrifice up the mountain on which it was to be provided. And so we rejoice in that reality this morning. And as we uh, look to Abraham, 
and, and we see his actions and we examine his life, we actually accept and receive the fact that we are called children of Abraham, uh, that we too live by faith, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the, the pressures of the world around us seek to dry up that faith. We stand alongside Abraham, alongside countless billions who have put their faith in you. And God, as we continue in worship this morning, I pray that because you're here, you would speak to us. And we want to open up our hearts and minds to that possibility. And perhaps you would want to, for some of us, I really sense you want to remind them of the beauty of what was provided on that mountain. And for some of us, I think you want to speak to us about what's next. I sense that you're, you're calling some people in this room by name and you're, you're waiting for us to just say, here I am. What, what is it, Jesus? What's the next thing? And, and as you respond and as you fill in the blanks and as you whisper to us, God, would you tell us what we are to do by faith? Would you, would you fill in that blank? By faith, I will. Speak to us, Lord, as we worship you here. In Jesus' name, amen.